Thaddeus Ellenberg presents Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. Faking One Giant Leap. If you had told me that on the other end of the telephone was the President of the United States asking me, Reuben Merriweather, an over-the-hill, washed-up musical has-been with a big toe sticking out of his sock, several hundred dollars in the hole thanks to a hasty, ill-informed bet placed against the success of the Beatles in their first year, which I thought was a lock after seeing their hair and having no prior knowledge of them, to not only take part in what was going to be the biggest dupe in universe history, but also plan and execute it, I probably would have left the ringing well enough alone. I was past my prime in every sense of the saying, as I hadn't had a choice cut of beef in eons. Back in my heyday, though, I was so flush with cash, I was using filet mignon as paperweights. Downside was, whenever I brought my work home, the neighborhood dogs would follow. Ah, those were the days. Sadly, by the time this whole debacle began in 63, I was lucky enough to find myself in front of a bowl of watery refuse. Or gazpacho. There was no difference. And on a particularly blessed day, if I found myself in his good graces and the recipient of miraculous prosperity, I would be treated to something particularly scrumptious while rummaging through my neighbor's cupboard as they were out to mass. I lived on the west side of Chicago near Antipasto Avenue. The smells alone wafting through the streets provided enough carbohydrates for one man, or a group of four aggressively bicurious boys. Unfortunately, nasal nutriment did nothing to aid in my appetite, as I've been bedeviled by a deviated septum ever since actress Marla Calhoun punched me in the nose after I mistook her Don Loper muff as the results of a relaxed holiday diet. My apartment had a Murphy bed that caught the opposite wall halfway down, and it shook with pants dropping force every time the L went by. Like that army fellow with the pompadour and gyrating hips I passed on for the lead in my last picture, Exotic Woman and G.I. Singh. Again, it was the hair that was my undoing. Instead, I went with Paul Lynn and paired him with a donkey wearing makeup. In my defense, talking animals were big at the time and the cost of peanut butter was lower than ever. But I guess I let overzealousness get the better of me. Fortunately, it wouldn't be the last time. The film was met with an outpouring of critical condemnation and prompted a number of amendments throughout both the film and cosmetics industries. So when the phone rang, you bet I picked up. The pitch was vague, but at the time I would have taken anything. An opportunity was an opportunity, and a dollar was a dollar. And my work was still my life, even if it was classified. I saw my comeback, shimmering with gold and illuminated in the brilliant lights of a corner marquee. Not on the west coast, but smack dab in the center of the country's capital, Washington, D.C. A credit that sadly nobody would see. That is, unless they had level seven clearance. But a marquee featuring a production so important 
It would stretch beyond Hollywood and the sleepy downtown theater of anywhere USA, and instead be fed directly to every television set on the planet. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero, zero, and liftoff! Liftoff, America's In the summer of 1966, we began principal photography on Exodus Earth. That was our working title at the time, or codename as the higher-ups like to call it. But really, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back for a moment, shall we? Let the screen dissolve with haunting waves and allow the music to transport us back in time. <laughs> The 1930s were a gas. Hollywood was glamorous and musicals reigned supreme. I was the hottest choreographer the studio had at its disposal, which was saying a lot given the fact I was their only musical director under contract, not working exclusively with new dancers. In 1933, I choreographed Uniform Dames, which was an absolute smash, my first hit. I was with Laminate Pictures and had been given free reign with all my numbers, and I never looked back. The following year, I directed the musical sequences for three top-grossing pictures, Spinning Pianos, Champagne Nights, and that Stanley Bockwell showgirl classic, The Way In, my first Academy Award contender, which I lost to the film Wartime Dreamscapes in that dick Richard Smitely. He empowered the girls by giving them rifles and poignant dialogue. I didn't know that was allowed. But I bounced back later that same year with a sensational number of Chickadee's Two Cents in Littered Roush's instant hit, Glitzy Pants and a Matching Jacket. At the time, we were unaware, but costume designer Margaret Miller Schuster had designed the first ever pantsuit. And although it wasn't the most appealing thing, it served its purpose. Then one day I got a phone call from the head of Laminate Pictures, Xavier J.P. Farrington, whom we all called Sal. It made perfect sense. He was a big cheese in Hollywood, but he was soft and an export, a foreigner, which made him stinky and easy to manipulate. So I opened a box of soda biscuits and heard what he had to say. Reuben, my boy, I want you to make me a picture. Sure thing, Sal. I'd love to. But who's directing? Why, you, of course. And Artie Mays. Co-direct, you say? I asked with period gusto. Nah, I think I'm going to skip that step in my career. Try again. Reuben, my boy. He took another stab at it. Direct me a picture yourself. Plaster your name and only your name over every inch of it. Sal, I'm over the moon. I'm speechless. I said while simultaneously writing down my fee in a 10-year contract with final cut and total take of ticket sales before sliding across his desk. Also, we were in his office now. There was no way this could come back on me. In those days, karma was a kind of donut. It was coated with sugar, and it was delicious. Naturally, being the cowardice, impotent pushover Sal was, and when I say that, I say that with great affection, he accepted my offer. But not before I gave him a few notes on his performance, which included a cigar hanging from his mouth and the suggestion of leaning back in his chair to punctuate the offer with a robust and commanding tweed-stretched fupa. 
And so we ran through the scene several more times until he got it right. And by until he got it right, I mean we were losing light and the crew was beginning to notice my tremors from withdrawal. Plus, I was already thinking of my next project. Two months later, Native Soul hit theaters nationwide. My directorial debut. Native Soul was the completely original story of an outsider crawling up the Hollywood ladder, only to find he's afraid of heights and vastly unqualified. Lindsay Murdoch played wide-eyed studio bigwig Saul Rosenbergstein and delighted audiences with his heavenly falsetto. My dreams were taking off in an unimaginable direction, and the sky was the limit. Oh, how naive and more wrong I could not have been. For 20 years, I made the biggest musicals with the biggest stars using the widest aspect ratios. My kaleidoscinemascope revolutionized the industry, bankrupted movie houses all across the country. Each seat in the theater came with a vomit bag, and we stole the prototype from Kenway Airlines, corner to corner. It was a career of immediate growth, followed by a healthy and natural decline into failed television pilots. And I did it better than anyone. At the start of the 1940s, I had already directed two Oscar-nominated pictures, 1939's Munchkin Parade and the 1940 musical comedy Barefoot Broadway Lady which followed small-town singer and dancer Dottie Ruth on her climb to the top or something. At that point in my career, I was very preoccupied with my outward appearance and was living day in and day out, more of a Hollywood trendsetter. I was phoning in most of my adjustments for the actors and I blocked all my scenes via telegram. I became so regularly absent from shooting, I asked the crew to not ruin the picture for me by giving away its plot. I epitomize celebrity wealth. I was so freaking high life when I opened my mouth, people got a face full of Dom Perignon and an ice cold washcloth. I single-handedly killed the midnight blue tuxedo when I saw Mervyn Fleming in one at the premiere of Seymour Willie's animated Marvel Dancing Animals on LSD and asked him if the insulation matched the wallpaper. It was too snappy a zing to question its logic. Men started carrying handkerchiefs in their breast pockets after they witnessed me at Lola Rogers' New Year's Eve bash wiping down the martini glass of my ex-wife, who died suddenly that night under mysterious circumstances. The 1950s were a blur, fueled by unbridled ambition and a zircon habit I couldn't shake. I knew early on that trends were cyclical and that buying cheap, ironically, was cool. I got into some weird literature and started hanging out with people much poorer than myself. I was in search of new ideas. The drugs helped out with that almost immediately. The idea to dub Thelma Reed's desperate solo in Lonely Backwoodsman using the voices of three different actresses came to me while tripping berries and singing impromptu show tunes in my tri-mirrored vanity. I was firing on all creative cylinders. Sure, I may have made a few missteps along the way, but each of them were in the name of cinematic progress and narrative exploration. In 1958, I did It's a Topsy-Turvy World with Bing Bigsby. I shot the entire film with the camera upside down and made the cast walk on their hands. I knew I was onto something before I even had an inkling of what it was. And I rode that ambiguity all the way to release. 
I had possibly delivered the most insightful social commentary ever conveyed in a musical. But the critics hated it. They crucified me. They referred to my shows as mere stunts and called my routines routine. Their criticism was solid B-level wit, and I couldn't knock them for that. Writer Spike Jenkins labeled me dangerous and put out an ad in Variety calling for a full-scale manhunt. Heading into the 1960s, I moved from what I was calling experimental musical features to the vibrantly surreal subgenre of beach party films, which were making their way onto the scene. There was Midriff Beach, Bikini Patrol, and my personal favorite, Goodbye Bush, Hello Go-Go. But I was so out of touch with the youth. Plus, I couldn't keep up with their nonsensical, tongue-twisting, non-amonopoeia-sounding lyrics. It was just all so unnecessary. Also, my susceptibility to swimmer's ear was out of control. Rain was a constant fear. The studio was struggling, and my short scent on the small screen didn't help. I shot the pilot for blackout without removing the lens cap, so the audience at home could feel the blackout. Shortly after, laminate tanked and the bank foreclosed on my Hollywood spread up in the hills, which had naturally taken on an open-door policy and was packed to the rafters with bohemians, freethinkers, and a surprisingly reasonable water bill. In fact, the whole place was starting to give off a real L. Ron Hubbard vibe, if you know what I mean. So with nothing more than a padded bendel from the old laminate props department, I bade farewell to the town that gave me everything and caught the 215 cattle train to Chicago. I found work on the killing floor of the Schwager Slaughterhouse courtesy of my fine traveling companions, who aided in making my first day on the job both fun and very uncomfortable. The pay was meager and security was tight. We were a crafty crew, but the friskers were thorough. The spoils and opulence of my yesteryear were paraded in front of me as if a haunting reminder of my untamed hubris. I moved into a closet of a room on the west side and spent my evenings dreaming of cocktail parties, swimming pools, a bathroom on the same floor. Then on one distinctively ordinary evening, after drinking my fill of the neighbor's wine, the phone rang. And with noticeably more urgency, I might add, which is difficult to spot with a phone. You gotta listen closely, but it's there. I lifted the receiver and found my key light. Hello? Mr. Uh, Merriweather? It was the Commander-in-Chief himself, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. The accent was undeniable. It was the vocal equivalent of a $24 seafood platter, the Maryland crab cake, and light butter sauce. In the moment, I seized an opportunity. Happy birthday, Mr. President, I said with my best impression of a barbiturate-filled marriage between sexy and sad. The President continued. Today, your country calls you up for service. What kind of service, I asked, choking on my own pathetic dejection. I won't sugarcoat it, Weather. We're in a tight spot. And I've got a pledge out there I best make good on come New Year's, 1970. You could hear it in his voice, and it was not the fresh catch of the day I was hoping for. Cue music. In the early 60s, the country was in the middle of a space race, which was jump-started by two guys in big coats named Sputz and Nick, and their Russian friend Yuri something. 
In response, the president promised to put a man on the moon by decade's end. The country was striving for global eminence. And at the time, I was spending Wednesday nights worshiping with a witchy cult by the reservoir. Apparently, things down south weren't progressing as quickly as Washington would have liked. And with things heating up in Vietnam, they were beginning to roll out the lifeboats. You want me to shoot a picture for the government? I asked organically to move along the story. In a manner of speaking, we'll talk more later, though. I got a split. I got this thing in Dallas. And that was the last time we ever spoke. On the phone. Because the next time was in person, six days later, poolside at the Hollywood Palms in Los Angeles. That's right, baby, I was back. And with a red carpet welcome, reveling in the plushy affluence of Hollywood's most decadent and discreet hotel for the glitterati elite, which included a visual buffet of flesh that required two beach towels to conceal my excitement. And as I stepped to the edge of the pool, I found myself staring at a ghost. John F. Cudini. Risen from the grave, free of shackles, and diving headfirst into a pair of 60s breasts. I was dumbfounded. See, when the public started asking the question, who killed Kennedy, they should have been asking the more practical question. Was Kennedy really dead? Short answer with a question? What do you think? Shorter answer? No. Light in the Loafer's producer, Shep Francis, heard from his boy toy, Texas governor, that when Kennedy's car took the left on Elm Street, Jack turned to Jackie and said, It's been real. Leave it to the politicians that have the forethought to ignite and feed the perpetuation of a conspiracy as means of a distraction. <laughs> it was a number they could perform in their sleep, forwards and backwards. Which is a weird way to dream. And so there we were, drinking daiquiris, our bodies dripping with bronzer and roasting to cosmetic perfection under a gorgeous California sun in a cancerless culture. Ha, the sun. How ironic. Mr. Merriweather? The president turned to me, the light catching his ventriloquist dummy-like face before uttering eight words that would affect the rest of my life in a profound and lasting way. He said... I want you to fake the moon landing. I was flabbergasted. So much to the degree I didn't even realize I was getting worked on under my towel by, as best I could tell, a silhouetted hive of hair. The moon landing? I asked with boyish exuberance as a 70-year-old man. Frankly, Weather, he tried to make it stick, we don't have a clue of what we're doing, and it appears a few more years won't make an iota of difference. That's where you come in. Why me? I asked, tickling the heart of the story. We phoned all the top directors, he said. Osborne, Samuels, Donan. The president flattered to the delight of my ego. And none of them picked up. Under my towel, the wet noodle express pulled into the station right on time. I see, I said, favoring the shady side of my deck chair. My answer was one of the painful kind, and suddenly I felt cheap. Then something awoke in me. I had been given a second chance. An opportunity to pull myself up out of the gutter and reclaim my legacy. And it filled my body with a confidence I hadn't felt since Mamie Daltrey said I was the best she ever had, moments before I cast her as the female lead in adults playing teens. 
we were going to fake the moon landing. And from there, who knew? Venus, Neptune, Saturn? I was looking at a multi-picture deal. It was a high no drug could match. Although that night we partied so A-list, the president fell off his balcony into a palm tree during a sex pyramid with actress Jodie Ray, the ensemble cast of 1961 Shakespearean gang musical Foes in Love, and the hotel's portly house detective, Bugs. The next morning, we nursed our hangovers with eggs and top sirloin steak at the griddle stand and got to work. From day one, the space program fostered the idea of a plan B in the event they couldn't meet their deadline. It was a tall order. And with a mass monkey grave nestled somewhere in the Sunshine State, Washington was beginning to have their doubts. Enter a seemingly over-the-hill cinematic legend and a motorboating dead guy in the wake of a country in mourning. But where to execute such an elaborate scheme? DC, Houston, Area 51, which I just learned was a thing. And then it hit me, like 3 a.m. indigestion. Hollywood. We shoot the entire thing right under everybody's noses, I pitched the president, who was having a lot of trouble lowering the restaurant's blinds. And we conceal every bit of it within the shooting schedule of a doomed film production. It was genius. But most importantly, general enough to evade any narrative copyrights that might appear in my memoir. First thing was first, though. We would need the perfect shell project. And I had just the film. Goop from Space was a 200-page sci-fi monster flick I wrote in one sitting several years earlier after doing heroin while wearing satin pajamas. It told the story of this multiplying glob from outer space that lands in a Midwest-looking town and starts eating its way up the food chain. First with derelicts, the neighborhood pets, and so on in that fashion. In the end, we find out that the goop is in fact space junk from a planet called Earth. That was the big Rod Serling one too that nobody would see coming. It was the perfect cover. We purchased the dilapidated lots of laminate pictures where we found my old punching bag, Xavier J.P. Farrington, Sal from Act One, living in the rickety upstairs brothel from the peaceful sheriff set. We hosed him off at the studio stable, walloped him with oversized powder puffs, and reinstated him as chief executive of Laminate Pictures. Then we stuffed that studio fat like a Christmas goose, courtesy of taxpayer dollars funneled in through freaky government back channels. We fed the press a phony story about Farrington rebuilding his empire after turning a nickel from the drain into a fortune. It was a supporting rags-to-riches-to-rags, back-to-riches biopic that could only be the product of Hollywood. Life's go-to for endless retakes. Kennedy had split for Cuba with a chorus line of vivacious creatures and said he'd send me a postcard. But there would be no waiting by the mailbox. I had a picture to make. Before jetting, the K-Man put me in touch with one of their own, a babysitter from NASA. They called him the Rocket Man. Since the only rocket men I knew were in West Hollywood, I figured it was an alias. Rockets was to serve as the show's consultant and my Texas contact. Secrecy was paramount and the truth of our labors, both East and West, had to remain independent of each other. They didn't know about us, and we didn't know about them. 
When people in the street would mention the Apollo missions during idle chit-chat, I'd rear back and shoot them this look like they didn't know what they were talking about. And it was Rocket's role to provide us with the material we needed to duplicate an authentic landing. Specs, source photos, even the layouts for a possible product placement deal with Tang. But Lemon had to look on the up and up. And with just a single picture in development, we were beginning to appear as the perfect underdog story. And that meant reporters and journalists we weren't paying. The studio had to produce. But nothing to critical acclaim, just tight, middle-of-the-road mediocrity to keep us under the radar. Popcorn pushers. It was imperative that we stay one step alongside industry trends. So I padded the studio with a production slate nobody would question. He Represents the Voiceless was based on the courtroom novel of the same name, which we hired someone to write, then released through a sham publisher. A slapstick comedy about a nitwit minding a swanky hotel for his ill uncle called Rung Bell, with bits involving a lot of doors opening and closing. Looking for romance? Try The Millionaire and the Nobody, our period musical that promised expensive gowns, penthouse views, and a two-and-a-half-minute trailer that answered all the audience's questions. The Endless Hour was a G-rated war pick starring that famous Hollywood roughneck Howard Pyle, who we made up and went so far as to purchase a Beverly Hills house for, where we auditioned and cast a mother and 2.5 children to live. And let's not forget Laminate's little tech-heavy sci-fi project being shot on Stage 7, Goop from Space, scheduled for release whenever Houston gave the signal. And directed by what our own Hedda Hopper, Rita Hooper, wrote in a film journal we bankrolled, that once-celebrated musical master Reuben Merriweather in the desperate 11th hour of an apparent comeback. I took grievance, but shelved it for my country. That night, though, I turned heads by going casual to a formal affair. It was just the fix I needed. It was time to assemble a crew. Swish pan. To produce, I brought in the brightest and most illustrious from Hollywood's golden age of musicals. That iconic lyricist and production guru, Sid Sherman. Sid had sadly fallen out of the public eye in the 1950s after finding himself in a PR pickle spearheaded by the studio for not disclosing his affair with 12-year-old actress Lana Tate to HR. If there was one thing Hollywood despised more than gossip, it was a disregard for office policy. For the photography, I enlisted my main man, Reinhold Baker, who had filmed in Laos during the rebellions in 1960. He was there shooting a travel documentary on exotic foods. Remember, legs mean protein. Nobody could capture foreign landscapes better than Baker. But behind the camera, I would need an eye for the surreal. Someone that could take the audience to the moon emotionally. Manuel Santiago was the guy. A classically trained surrealist, Santiago was the most avant-garde they came. With a 40-year career featuring film history classics from that 1926 silent masterpiece, Ants on Food, to the 1961 treasure, Decomposing Animals, I knew the moon's potential horrors would be conveyed honestly and with gross, irrational irony. (laughs) 
we were flirting with the point of no return and making all the right moves. The studio had a lineup you couldn't bribe someone to cover, and the hoax was receiving from us the perfect amount of attention. So we thought. But even after all those years, I still lacked wisdom. I was falling back into old habits, blinded by superficialities and plagued by personal pitfalls. It was obvious I was losing perspective. We would need to go bigger, much bigger, and further, further than any production had gone before. Reach out into those vast stretches of the cinematic unknown and grab history by the balls and say we did. There was no equivalent to our endeavor. In the contrails of the nation's pursuit of glory, we would take movie magic to new heights, and it would be the longest and most trying production of my entire life. This has been a production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. With an introduction by Nicole Kalasich. And artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg and Will Scovel. To find more episodes and information, visit our website at casualfridaypodcast.org or email us at contact.casualfriday at gmail.com.